Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in again to Another World Audiobooks. In case it's your first time tuning in, Another World is all about bringing you free, high-quality audiobooks. Because I mean, you can go to YouTube and find some decent audiobooks here and there, but they're really hard to come by. Plus, you never know if the ending is actually going to be on there. You can also check out something like LibriVox, but since they crowdsource their audio, the quality is sometimes less than stellar. No offense to anybody over there, it's just kind of how it is. Or the third option would be to go to something like uh, Audible. However, uh, if you've ever done that before, you know how expensive that can be. That's why Another World Audiobooks exists, bring you high-quality, full audiobooks for free. Now, if that's the type of thing that you can get behind, I only ask one thing of you. Well, maybe two things. First, just enjoy. Listen to the podcast, enjoy it. And the second thing is, just tell somebody about it. I want to spread Another World Audiobooks as far out as possible. We've got listeners all over the world, and it seems like, especially you guys in Australia, shout out to you guys for, for downloading the podcast. But I know the podcast could go further, and I need your help to spread it. So that's the only thing I ask. Listen, enjoy the podcast, and spread the word to other people. And so now, without further ado, I give you the next two chapters of Tarzan of the Apes. Chapter 7. The Light of Knowledge. After what seemed an eternity to the little sufferer, he was able to walk once more, and from then on his recovery was so rapid that in another month he was as strong and active as ever. During his convalescence he had gone over in his mind many times the battle with the gorilla, and his first thought was to recover the wonderful little weapon which had transformed him from a hopeless outclassed weakling to the superior of the mighty terror of the jungle. Also, he was anxious to return to the cabin and continue his investigations of its wondrous contents. So, early one morning, he set forth alone upon his quest. After a little search, he located the clean-picked bones of his late adversary, and close by, partly buried beneath the fallen leaves, he found the knife, now red with rust and its exposure to the dampness of the ground, and from the dried blood of the gorilla. He did not like the change in its former bright and gleaming surface, but it was still a formidable weapon, and one which he meant to use to advantage whenever the opportunity presented itself. He had in mind that no more would he run from the wanton attacks of old Tublot. In another moment he was at the cabin, and after a short time had again thrown the latch and entered. His first concern was to learn the mechanism of the lock, and this he did by examining it closely while the door was open, so that he could learn precisely what caused it to hold the door, and by what means it released at his touch. He found that he could close and lock the door from within, and this he did so that there would be no chance of his being molested while at his investigation. He commenced a systematic search of the cabin, but his attention was soon riveted by the books which seemed to exert a strange and powerful influence over him, so that he could scarce attend to aught else for the lure of the wondrous puzzle which their purpose presented to him. Among the other books was a primer, some child's readers, numerous picture books, and a great dictionary. All of these he examined, but the pictures caught his fancy most. Though the strange little bugs which covered the pages where there were no pictures excited his wonder and deepest thought. Squatting upon his haunches on the tabletop in the cabin his father had built, his smooth, brown, naked little body bent over the book which rested in his strong, slender hands, and his great shock of long, black hair falling about his well-shaped head and bright, intelligent eyes. Tarzan of the Apes, little primitive man, presented a picture filled at once with pathos and with promise, an allegorical figure of the primordial groping through the black night of ignorance toward the light of learning. 
His little face was tense in study, for he had partially grasped, in a hazy, nebulous way, the rudiments of a thought which was destined to prove the key and the solution to the puzzling problem of the strange little bugs. In his hands was a primer opened at a picture of a little ape similar to himself, but covered, except for hands and face, with strange coloured fur, for such he thought the jacket and trousers to be. Beneath the picture were three little bugs. B. O. Y. And now he had discovered in the text upon the page that these three were repeated many times in the same sequence. Another fact he learned, that there were comparatively few individual bugs, but these were repeated many times occasionally alone, but more often in company with others. Slowly he turned the pages, scanning the pictures and the text for a repetition of the combination B-O-Y. Presently he found it beneath a picture of another little ape, and a strange animal which went upon four legs like the jackal, and resembled him not a little. Beneath this picture the bugs appeared as a boy and a dog. There they were, three little bugs which always accompanied the little ape. And so he progressed very, very slowly, for it was a hard and laborious task which he had set himself without knowing it, a task which might seem to you or me impossible, learning to read without having the slightest knowledge of letters or written language, or the faintest idea that such things existed. He did not accomplish it in a day, or in a week, or in a month, or in a year, but slowly, very slowly, he learned after he had grasped the possibilities which lay in those little bugs, so that, by the time he was fifteen, he knew the various combination of letters which stood for every pictured figure in the little primer, and one or two of the picture-books." Of the meaning and use of the articles and conjunctions, verbs and adverbs and pronouns, he had but the faintest conception. One day, when he was about twelve, he found a number of lead pencils in a hitherto undiscovered drawer beneath the table, and in scratching upon the table-top with one of them, he was delighted to discover the black lines it left behind. He worked so assiduously with his new toy that the table-top was soon a mass of scrawling loops and irregular lines, and his pencil-point worn down to the wood. Then he took another pencil, but this time he had a definite object in view. He would attempt to reproduce some of the little bugs that scrambled over the pages of his books. It was a difficult task, for he held the pencil as one would grasp the hilt of a dagger, which does not add greatly to ease in writing or to the legibility of the results. But he persevered for months, at such times as he was able to come to the cabin, until at last, by repeated experimenting, he found a position in which to hold the pencil that best permitted him to guide and control it, so that at last he could roughly reproduce any of the little bugs. Thus he made a beginning of writing. Copying the bugs taught him another thing, their number, and though he could not count as we understand it, yet he had an idea of quantity, the base of his calculations being the number of fingers upon one of his hands. His search through the various books convinced him that he had discovered all the different kinds of bugs most often repeated in combination, and these he arranged in proper order with great ease because of the frequency with which he had perused the fascinating alphabet picture book. His education progressed, but his greatest finds were in the inexhaustible storehouse of the huge illustrated dictionary— for he learned more through the medium of pictures than text, even after he grasped the significance of the bugs. When he discovered the arrangement of words in alphabetical order, he delighted in searching for and finding the combinations with which he was familiar, and the words which followed them, their definitions, led him still further into the mazes of erudition. By the time he was seventeen, he had learned to read the simple child's primer, and had fully realized the true and wonderful purpose of the little bugs. 
No longer did he feel shame for his hairless body or his human features, for now his reason told him that he was of a different race from his wild and hairy companions. He was a M-A-N. They were A-P-E-S. And the little apes which scurried through the forest top were M-O-N-K-E-Y-S. He knew, too, that old Sabor was a L-I-O-N-E-S-S, and Hister a S-N-A-K-E, and Tantor an E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T. And so he learned to read. From then on his progress was rapid, with the help of the great dictionary, and the active intelligence of a healthy mind endowed by inheritance with more than ordinary reasoning powers— he shrewdly guessed at much which he could not really understand, and more often than not, his guesses were close to the mark of truth. There were many breaks in his education, caused by the migratory habits of his tribe, but even when removed from his books, his active brain continued to search out the mysteries of his fascinating avocation. Pieces of bark and flat leaves and even smooth stretches of bare earth provided him with copy-books whereon to scratch with the point of his hunting-knife the lessons he was learning— nor did he neglect the sterner duties of life while following the bent of his inclination toward the solving of the mystery of his library. He practiced with his rope and played with his sharp knife, which he had learned to keep keen by wetting upon flat stones. The tribe had grown larger since Tarzan had come among them, for under the leadership of Kerchak they had been able to frighten the other tribes from their part of the jungle, so they had plenty to eat and little or no loss from predatory incursions of neighbors. Hence, the younger males, as they became adult, found it more comfortable to make mates from their own tribe, or if they captured one of another tribe, to bring her back to Kerchak's band and live with amity with him rather than attempt to set up new establishments of their own, or fight with a redoubtable Kerchak for supremacy at home. Occasionally, one more ferocious than his fellows would attempt this latter alternative, but none had come yet who could wrest the palm of victory from the fierce and brutal ape. Tarzan held a peculiar position in the tribe. They seemed to consider him one of them, and yet in some way different. The older males either ignored him entirely, or else hated him so vindictively that but for his wondrous agility and speed, and the fierce protection of the huge Kayla, he would have been dispatched at an early age. Tublat was his most consistent enemy, but it was through Tublat that, when he was about thirteen, the persecution of his enemies suddenly ceased, and he was left severely alone, except on the occasions when one of them ran amuck in the throes of one of those strange, wild fits of insane rage which attacks the males of many of the fiercer animals of the jungle. Then none was safe. On the day that Tarzan established his right to respect, the tribe was gathered about a small, natural amphitheatre, which the jungle had left free from its entangling vines and creeper in a hollow among some low hills. The open space was almost circular in shape. Upon every hand rose the mighty giants of the untouched forest, with the matted undergrowth banks so deeply between the huge trunks that the only opening into the little level arena was through the upper branches of the trees. Here, safe from interruptions, the tribe often gathered. In the centre of the amphitheatre was one of those strange earthen drums which the anthropoids build for the queer rites of sounds of which men have heard in the fastness of the jungle, but which none has ever witnessed. Many travellers have seen the drums of the great apes, and some have heard the sounds of their beating and the noise of the wild, weird revelry of these first lords of the jungle. But Tarzan, Lord Greystoke, is doubtless the only human being who has ever joined in the fierce, mad, intoxicating revel of the dum-dum. 
On the day that Tarzan won his emancipation from the persecution that had followed him remorselessly for twelve of his thirteen years of life, the tribe, now a full hundred strong, trooped silently through the lower terrace of the jungle trees and dropped noiselessly upon the floor of the amphitheatre. The rites of the dum-dum marked important events in the life of the tribe. A victory, the capture of a prisoner, the killing of some large fierce denizen of the jungle, the death or ascension of a king, and were conducted with set ceremonialism. Today, it was the killing of a giant ape, a member of another tribe, and as the people of Kerchak entered the arena, two mighty bulls were seen bearing the body of the vanquished between them. They laid their burden before the earthen drum, and then squatted there beside it as guards, while the other members of the community curled themselves in grassy nooks to sleep until the rising moon should give the signal for the commencement of their savage orgy. For hours, absolute quiet reigned in the little clearing, except as it was broken by the discordant notes of brilliantly feathered parrots, or the screeching and twittering of a thousand jungle birds flitting ceaselessly amongst the vivid orchids and flamboyant blossoms which festooned the myriad, moss-covered branches of the forest kings. At length, as darkness settled upon the jungle, the apes commenced to bestir themselves, and soon they formed a great circle about the earthen drum— the females and young squatted in a thin line at the outer periphery of the circle, while just in front of them ranged the adult males. Before the drum sat three old females, each armed with a knotted branch fifteen or eighteen inches in length. Slowly and softly, they began tapping upon the resounding surface of the drum as the first faint rays of the ascending moon silvered the encircling treetops. As the light of the amphitheatre increased, the females augmented the frequency and force of their blows, until presently a wild, rhythmic din pervaded the great jungle for miles in every direction. Huge, fierce brutes stopped in their hunting, with up-pricked ears and raised heads, to listen to the dull booming that betokened the dum-dum of the apes. Occasionally one would raise his shrill scream or thunderous roar in answering challenge to the savage din of the anthropoids, but none came near to investigate or attack for the great apes, assembled in all the power of their numbers, filled the breasts of their jungle neighbors with deep respect. As the din of the drum rose to almost deafening volume, Kerchak sprang into the open space between the squatting males and drummers. Standing erect, he threw his head far back, and looking full into the eye of the rising moon, he beat upon his breast with his great hairy paws, and emitted his fearful roaring shriek. Once, Twice, thrice, that terrifying cry rang out across the teeming solitude of that unspeakably quick, yet unthinkably dead world. Then, crouching, Kerchak slunk noiselessly around the open circle, veering far away from the dead body lying before the altar drum, but, as he passed, keeping his little, fierce, wicked red eyes upon the corpse. Another male then sprang into the arena, and repeating the horrid cries of his king, followed stealthily in his wake. Another and another followed him in quick succession, until the jungle reverberated with the now almost ceaseless notes of their bloodthirsty screams. It was the challenge and the hunt. When all the adult males had joined in the thin line of circling dancers, the attack commenced. Kerchak, seizing a huge club from the pile which lay at hand for the purpose, rushed furiously upon the dead ape, dealing the corpse a terrific blow, at the same time emitting the growls and snarls of combat— the din of the drum was now increased, as well as the frequency of the blows, and the warriors, as each approached the victim of the hunt and delivered his bludgeon blow, joined in the mad whirl of the death dance. 
Tarzan was one of the wild leaping horde. His brown, sweat-streaked muscular body, glistening in the moonlight, shone supple and graceful among the uncouth, awkward, hairy brutes about him. None was more stealthy in the mimic hunt, none more ferocious than he in the wild ferocity of the attack, none who leaped so high into the air in the dance of death. As the noise and rapidity of the drumbeats increased, the dancers apparently became intoxicated with the wild rhythm and the savage yells. Their leaps and bounds increased, their barred fangs dripped saliva, and their lips and breasts were flecked with foam. For half an hour, the weird dance went on, until, at a sign from Kerchak, the noise of the drums ceased, the female drummers scampering hurriedly through the line of dancers toward the outer rim of the squatting spectators. Then, as one, the males rushed headlong upon the thing which their terrific blows had reduced to a mass of hairy pulp. Flesh seldom came to their jaws in satisfying quantities, so a fit finale to their wild revel was a taste of fresh-killed meat, and it was to the purpose of devouring their late enemy that they now turned their attention. Great fangs sunk into the carcass, tearing away huge hunks, the mightiest of the apes obtaining the choicest morsels, while the weaker circled the outer edge of the fighting, snarling pack, awaiting their chance to dodge in and snatch a dropped tidbit or filter remaining bone before all was gone. Tarzan, more than the apes, craved and needed flesh. Descending from a race of meat-eaters, never in his life, he thought, had he once satisfied his appetite for animal food, and so now his agile little body wormed its way far into the mass of struggling, rending apes in an endeavour to obtain a share which his strength would have been unequal to the task of winning him. At his side hung the hunting knife of his unknown father, in a sheath self-fashioned in copy of one he had seen among the pictures of his treasure books. At last he reached the fast-appearing feast, and with his sharp knife slashed off a more generous portion than he had hoped for, an entire hairy forearm which then protruded from beneath the feet of the mighty Kerchak, who was so busily engaged in perpetuating the royal prerogative of gluttony that he failed to notice the act of laissez majesté. So little Tarzan wriggled out from beneath the struggling mass, clutching his grisly prize close to his breast. Among those circling futilely the outskirts of the banqueters was old Tublat, he had been among the first at the feast, but he had retreated with a goodly share to eat in quiet, and was now forcing his way back for more. So it was that he spied Tarzan as the boy emerged from the clawing, pushing throng with that hairy forearm hugged firmly to his body. Tublad's little, close-set, bloodshot pig eyes shot wicked gleams of hate as they fell upon the object of his loathing. In them, too, was greed for the toothsome dainty the boy carried. But Tarzan saw his arch-enemy as quickly, and divining what the great beast would do, he leaped nimbly away toward the females and the young, hoping to hide himself among them. Tublad, however, was close upon his heels, so that he had no opportunity to seek a place of concealment, but saw that he would be put to it to escape it all. Swiftly he sped toward the surrounding trees, and with an agile bound gained a lower limb with one hand, and then, transferring his burden to his teeth, he climbed rapidly upward, closely followed by Tublat. Up, up he went to the waving pinnacle of the lofty monarch of the forest, where his heavy pursuer dared not follow him. There he perched, hurling taunts and insults at the raging, foaming beast fifty feet below him. And then, Tublat went mad. With horrifying screams and roars, he rushed to the ground among the females and young, sinking his great fangs into a dozen tiny necks and tearing great pieces from the backs and breasts of the females who fell into his clutches. In the brilliant moonlight, Tarzan witnessed the whole mad carnival of rage. He saw the females and the young scamper to the safety of the trees. 
Then the great bulls in the center of the arena felt the mighty fangs of their demented fellow, and with one accord they melted into the black shadows of the overhanging forest. There was but one in the amphitheater beside Tublat, a belated female running swiftly toward the tree where Tarzan perched, and close behind her came the awful Tublat. It was Kayla, and as quickly as Tarzan saw that Tublat was gaining on her, he dropped with the rapidity of a falling stone from branch to branch toward his foster mother. Now she was beneath the overhanging limbs, and close above her crouched Tarzan, waiting the outcome of the race. She leaped into the air, grasping a low-hanging branch, but almost over the head of Tublat, so nearly had he distanced her. She would have been safe now, but there was a rending, tearing sound. The branch broke, and precipitated her full upon the head of Tublat, knocking him to the ground. Both were up in an instant, but as quick as they had been, Tarzan had been quicker, so that the infuriated bull found himself facing the man-child who stood between him and Kayla. Nothing could have suited the fierce beast better, and with a roar of triumph he leaped upon the little Lord Greystoke, but his fangs never closed in the nut-brown flesh. A muscular hand shot out and grasped the hairy throat, and another plunged a keen hunting-knife a dozen times into the broad breast. Like lightning the blows fell, and only ceased when Tarzan felt the limp form crumple beneath him. As the body rolled to the ground, Tarzan of the apes placed his foot upon the neck of his lifelong enemy, and, raising his eyes to the full moon, threw back his fierce young head and voiced the wild and terrible cry of his people. One by one the tribe swung down from their arboreal retreats and formed a circle about Tarzan and his vanquished foe. When they had all come, Tarzan turned toward them. "'I am Tarzan,' he cried. "'I am a great killer. "'Let all respect Tarzan of the apes and Kayla, his mother. "'There be none among you as mighty as Tarzan. "'Let his enemies beware.' "'Looking full into the wicked red eyes of Kerchak, "'the young Lord Greystoke beat upon his mighty breast and screamed, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply screamed out once more his shrill cry of defiance. Chapter 8 The Treetop Hunter The morning after the dum-dum, the tribe started slowly back through the forest toward the coast. The body of Tublat lay where it had fallen, for the people of Kerchak do not eat their own dead. The march was but a leisurely search for food, cabbage palm and grey plum, Peasang and skytermine they found in abundance, with wild pineapple and occasionally small mammals, birds, eggs, reptiles, and insects. The nuts they cracked between their powerful jaws, or, if too hard, broke by pounding between stones. Once, old Sabor, crossing their path, sent them scurrying to safety of the higher branches, for if she respected their number and their sharp fangs, they, on their part, held her cruel and mighty ferocity in equal esteem. Upon a low-hanging branch sat Tarzan directly above the majestic, supple body as it forged silently through the thick jungle. He hurled a pineapple at the ancient enemy of his people. The great beast stopped and, turning, eyed the taunting figure above her. With an angry lash of her tail, she barred her yellow fangs, 
curling her great lips in a hideous snarl that wrinkled her bristling snout in serried ridges and closed her wicked eyes to two narrow slits of rage and hatred. With back-laid ears, she looked straight into the eyes of Tarzan of the Apes and sounded her fierce, shrill challenge. And from his safety of the overhanging limb, the ape-child sent back the fearsome answer of his kind. For a moment, the two eyed each other in silence, and then the great cat turned into the jungle, which swallowed her as the ocean engulfs a tossed pebble. But into the mind of Tarzan a great plan sprang. He had killed the fierce Tublat, so was he not therefore a mighty fighter? Now would he track down the crafty Sabor and slay her likewise. He would be a mighty hunter also. At the bottom of his little English hut be the great desire to cover his nakedness with clothes, for he had learned from his picture-books that all men were so covered, while monkeys and apes and every other living thing went naked. Clothes, therefore, must be truly a badge of greatness, the insignia of the superiority of man over all other animals, for surely there could be no other reason for wearing the hideous things. Many moons ago, when he had been much smaller, he had desired the skin of Sabor, the lioness, or Numa, the lion, or Sheeta, the leopard, to cover his handless body, that he might no longer resemble the hideous Hista, the snake. But now he was proud of his sleek skin, for it betokened his descent from a mighty race, and the conflicting desire to go naked in prideful proof of his ancestry, or to conform to the customs of his own kind, and wear hideous and uncomfortable apparel, found first one and then the other in ascendancy. As the tribe continued their slow way through the forest after the passing of Sabor, Tarzan's head was filled with his great scheme for slaying his enemy, and for many days thereafter he thought of little else. On this day, however, he presently had other and more immediate interests to attract his attention. Suddenly it became as midnight, the noises of the jungle ceased, the trees stood motionless, as though in paralyzed expectancy of some great and imminent disaster. All nature waited, but not for long. Faintly, from a distance, came a low, sad moaning. Nearer and nearer it approached, mounting louder and louder in volume. The great trees bent in unison, as though pressed earthward by a mighty hand. Farther and farther toward the ground they inclined, and still there was no sound save the deep and awesome moaning of the wind. Then, Suddenly, the jungle giants whipped back, lashing their mighty tops in angry and deafening protest. A vivid and blinding light flashed from the whirling, inky clouds above. The deep cannonade of roaring thunder belched forth its fearsome challenge. The deluge came. All hell broke loose upon the jungle. The tribe, shivering from the cold, huddled at the bases of great trees. The lightning, darting and flashing through the blackness, showed wildly waving branches, whipping streamers and bending trunks. Now and again, some ancient patriarch of the woods, rent by a flashing bolt, would crash in a thousand pieces among the surrounding trees, carrying down numberless branches and many smaller neighbors to add to the tangled confusion of the tropical jungle. Branches, great and small, tore away by the ferocity of the tornado, hurled through the wildly waving verdure, carrying death and destruction to countless unhappy denizens of the thickly peopled world below. For hours the fury of the storm continued without surcease, and still the tribe huddled close in shivering fear, in constant danger from falling trunks and branches, and paralyzed by the vivid flashing of lightning and the bellowing of thunder, they crouched in pitiful misery until the storm passed. The end was as sudden as the beginning. The wind ceased, the sun shone forth. Nature smiled once more. 
The dripping leaves and branches, the moist petals of gorgeous flowers, glistened in the splendor of the returning day, and so, as nature forgot, her children forgot also. Busy life went on as it had before the darkness and the fright. But to Tarzan, a dawning light had come to explain the mystery of clothes. How snug he would have been beneath the heavy coat of Sabor, and so was added a further incentive to the adventure. For several months, the tribe hovered near the beach where stood Tarzan's cabin, and his studies took up the greater portion of his time, but always when journeying through the forest, he kept his rope in readiness, and many were the smaller animals that fell into the snare of the quick-thrown noose. Once it fell about the short neck of Halter, the boar, and his mad lunge for freedom toppled Tarzan from the overhanging limb where he had lain in wait and from whence he had launched his sinuous coil. The mighty tusker turned at the sound of his falling body, and, seeing only the easy prey of a young ape, he lowered his head and charged madly at the surprised youth. Tarzan happily was uninjured by the fall, alighting cat-like upon all fours far outspread to take up the shock. He was on his feet in an instant, and, leaping with the agility of the monkey he was, he gained the safety of the low limb as Halter, the boar, rushed futilely beneath. Thus it was that Tarzan learned by experience the limitations as well as the possibilities of his strange weapon. He lost a long rope on this occasion, but he knew that had it been Sable who had dragged him thus from his perch, the outcome might have been very different, for he would have lost his life doubtless into the bargain. It took him many days to braid a new rope, but when finally it was done, he went forth purposely to hunt, and lie in wait among the dense foliage of a great branch right above the well-beaten trail that led to water. Several small animals passed unharmed beneath him. He did not want such insignificant game. It would take a strong animal to test the efficacy of his new scheme. At last came she whom Tarzan sought, with lithe sinews rolling beneath shimmering hide. Fat and glossy came Sabor, the lioness. Her great padded feet fell soft and noiseless on the narrow trail. Her head was high and ever alert attention. Her long tail moved slowly in sinuous and graceful undulations. Nearer and nearer she came to where Tarzan of the Apes crouched upon his limb, the coils of his long rope poised ready in his hand. Like a thing of bronze, motionless as death, sat Tarzan. Sabor passed beneath. One stride beyond she took, a second, a third, and then the silent coil shot out above her. For an instant the spreading noose hung above her head like a great snake, and then, as she looked upward to detect the origin of the swishing sound of the rope, it settled about her neck. With a quick jerk, Tarzan snapped the noose tight around the glossy throat, and then he dropped the rope and clung to his support with both hands. Sabor was trapped. With a bound, the startled beast turned into the jungle, but Tarzan was not to lose another rope through the same cause as the first. He had learned from experience. The lioness had taken but half her second bound, when she felt the rope tighten about her neck. Her body turned completely over in the air, and she fell with a heavy crash upon her back. Tarzan had fastened the end of the rope securely to the trunk of the great tree on which he sat. Thus far, his plan had worked to perfection, but when he grasped the rope, bracing himself behind the crotch of two mighty branches, he found that drawing the mighty, struggling, clawing, biting, screaming mass of iron-muscled fury up to the tree and hanging her was a very different proposition. The weight of old Sabor was immense, and when she braced her huge paws, nothing less than Tanto the elephant himself could have budged her. 
The lioness was now back in the path where she could see the author of the indignity which had been placed upon her. Screaming with rage, she suddenly charged, leaping high into the air toward Tarzan. But when her huge body struck the limb on which Tarzan had been, Tarzan was no longer there. Instead, he perched lightly upon a smaller branch twenty feet above the raging captive. For a moment, Sabor hung half across the branch, while Tarzan mocked and hurled twigs and branches at her unprotected face. Presently, the beast dropped to the earth again, and Tarzan came quickly to seize the rope, but Sabor had now found that it was only a slender cord that held her, and grasping it with her huge jaws, severed it before Tarzan could tighten the strangling noose a second time. Tarzan was much hurt. His well-laid plan had come to naught, so he sat there screaming at the roaring creature beneath him and making mocking grimaces at it. Sabor passed back and forth beneath the tree for hours. Four times she crouched and sprang at the dancing sprite above her, but might as well have clutched at the elusive wind that murmured through the treetops. At last, Tarzan tired of the sport, and with a parting roar of challenge and a well-aimed ripe fruit that spread soft and sticky over the snarling face of his enemy, he swung rapidly through the trees, a hundred feet above the ground, and in a short time was among the members of his tribe. Here he recounted the details of his adventure, with swelling chest and so considerable swagger that he quite impressed even his bitterest enemies, while Kayla fairly danced for joy and pride. Alright, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate you tuning into the podcast today and downloading another episode of Another World Audiobooks. I've mentioned this before, but just want to throw it out there again. Um, I My goal is to bring you guys more content. And uh, I'm limited by the number of hours in the day. So if you or somebody that you know would be interested in helping me edit the podcast, I'm looking for people to help out with the podcast uh, in that way. So if you could just get in touch with me, anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. If you or somebody that you know would be interested in helping me edit the podcast, I'd really appreciate your help. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Remember, tell somebody about the podcast. Helping spread the word means everything. Talk to you guys next time.